<clears throat> okay, so at Acts chapter 16 is where we'll be in today. Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. So a big, big chunk of scripture. <clears throat> um, okay, we'll read that and then we'll pray. If you could stand as we read the word of God. Then he came to Derby and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, we stand before you today in awe and wonder. We marvel at your perfect holiness, unblemished by sin, never giving in to temptation. We marvel at your infinite power, that you are seated in the heavenlies, yet you created and sustained the very universe in which all things exist. We marvel at your omnipresence, that rather than being seated in a distant place far from us, you are very near to us today. We marvel at your infinite mercy to us, that even as a perfect, holy creator, you owed us nothing, and yet you've given us all we need. In sending your Son to redeem us from our sinfulness, you've met our greatest need. And so today, Lord, we pray that as we study your word, that you would meet our ongoing need of you, that your presence would be with us, that your Holy Spirit would guide us into the truth in these pages today. Incline yourself to us that we may be more inclined towards you. And we ask this by the majesty and worthiness of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. And then you can take a seat. <clears throat> so last week, at the end of chapter 15, we saw that there was a division and that they split up. Uh, John, it, John Mark was the center of this contention, and Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark with them, and Paul said, no, he, he's let us down before. So now they're going off in different directions. And Paul's now traveling with Silas, um, and they went through Syria and Cilicia until they get here to Derby and to Lystra. And here we meet Timothy for the first time. He's the son of a Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. So Timothy's mom and Timothy's grandma were the ones that had instilled in him the Jewish faith. He didn't get that from his dad, who was Greek, who would have been brought up in, in paganism and you know, kind of Greek mythology and stuff. So Timothy's upbringing depended entirely on what well, we find out later in one of the letters that it was his mom and his grandma. So um, in 2 Timothy 1, 5 through 7, it says that Timothy's mom and grandma had instilled in him a genuine faith that leads to salvation. And so that's our job as parents and someday parents or even um, in our roles in child discipleship is to instill in them a faith that leads them to salvation. Um, I know that we're given the charge to raise them up in the way that they should go. We should be teaching kids godliness, how to 
you know, clean your room, have good character, uh, respond respectfully to others, and, and all of those things which are good and godly, but those don't lead them to salvation. So we can't teach them just to have good morals and not point them to the one that saves the immoral. So <clears throat> in 2 Timothy 3.14, says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. We're very fortunate to have the word of God because from cover to cover we can learn what is moral and what is immoral, what is ethically acceptable, what is morally blameless before God. And so we can learn how to live lives that bring him honor. But the overarching theme of the entire Bible is pointing to our need for a redeemer and what God has done. So we can't miss that point by just talking about morality. You know, we, can't, we have sermons on how to like try and be a better person. And if we're missing Christ, then we're missing the whole point. So if our kids continue in what they learn from us and what they are learning from us right now, will they be led to salvation? If we think about our Sunday school classes, uh, Awana, the ways that we serve and teach other people's kids, even outside of that, I mean, you know, the relationships that we have with other kids, Will they be led to salvation if they continue in what we're teaching them right now? So Timothy's father was Greek, and so we're told that it was all basically on his mom and his, and his grandmother too who taught him and raised him up in the faith. In Titus 2, Titus is told what he should be doing in order to help the church mature. And part of it was to have the older, the older women teach the younger women how to love and obey their husbands, to love their children, and to be homemakers. And if this didn't take place, he said that the word of God would be blasphemed if the older women were not teaching the younger women how to live godly lives. The Christian home is a picture of the church. If our homes are not in order, the church won't be in order. The church is a, a big family built up of smaller families. And so that's why the enemy, so much of his schemes are focused on destroying the family, tearing families and households apart, because if he can tear families apart, he can get a foothold in the church and wreak havoc inside the church. If families reject biblical gender roles, so will the church. If families reject the authority of God's word, so will the church. If families grow negligent in their religious duties, then so will the church. And if families stop caring about their children, then so will the church. In Timothy's case, his father doesn't appear to have been the spiritual leader of the home. It was the faith of Timothy's mom and grandma that Timothy was raised in, not the paganism of his Greek father. So maybe I think sometimes it seems that we underestimate the importance of what moms and what godly women do for kids and for their, their kids and the next generation of kids growing up in the church. Um, when Paul tells Titus that the older women should teach the younger women to be homemakers, I think that we think of like 
sewing and cleaning and baking or something, but there's so much more than that. It says uh, to be the keeper of the home, to keep it, to guard it, to be diligent about what is coming into the home. Oftentimes, moms are the first line of defense against what comes into their house. They're oftentimes the ones who are there with kids more often, and so they need to be watching, you know, what are you reading? What are you watching on TV? What music are you listening to? They're that first line of defense, but then they're also the primary educator um, raising the kids up if the dads are gone and at work, then the moms have a much more critical role than we really understand, I think. So <clears throat> evidently, they had done a good job. Evidently, Timothy's mom and grandmother did a good job. It says Timothy in verse 2, he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Proverbs 22, 1 says a good name is more desirable than great riches. It's, it's important to have a good reputation of good, godly character. And a lot of that character was shaping Timothy into who he was going to be now as an adult. And now comes a real test of that character. The foundation that Timothy had as a kid is now going to get tested as he meets Paul. Paul is a man who... Um, is sold out for God. His whole life revolves around the gospel and getting the gospel out and doing whatever it takes to be a servant of all. And so, Timothy, here you're going to be put to the test when Paul shows up and takes you under his wing. And that's, I think, a good question. Are our kids, are the kids that are in our life, in our charge, under our care, under our teaching, are they ready today? Are they ready today if we didn't show up tomorrow, if they were taken from us, if we died tonight? Are our kids ready to face the world? Are they ready to follow Jesus? See, we don't have tomorrow promise, and we can become kind of lackadaisical in our teaching because we're just putting it off. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. And for sure, there's we're called to trust the Lord. We're not supposed to be anxious, like, oh, i got to teach them everything that they need right now. But if they continue in what they've been being taught right now, are they going to be prepared? <clears throat> we teach them math and science and social studies and English and grammar, but are they ready to follow Jesus into the darkness, into a dark world around us? Are they ready for that? No amount of math or social studies or science or English is going to prepare them for that. So <clears throat> listen again to this verse. 2 Timothy 3.14 says, You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. We've taught them of Jesus, but are we teaching them to continue in what they've learned? Are we helping them to figure out how the gospel, how the Word of God applies to their life right now? Or are we just like dumping all this information on them, but actually asking them questions, drawing it out, saying, hey, what would you do in this situation? 
what about this? Or when they come into a real situation in their life, ask them right off the bat, instead of telling them, this is what you need to do, ask them, what do you think you should do? And, and why? Why do you think that the Word of God applies to your life in this area? Esme has a cool book. It's called Sticky Situations. And it kind of presents like a hypothetical kind of instance like that, where, hey, your friend, you saw your friend cheat on your homework, and then it gives you four different options. What should you do? And it's just kind of um, cultivating an understanding, hopefully, of how the Word of God applies to everyday situations. <clears throat> have we taught them to be assured? He says, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of. doesn't mean fearless and never experiencing any kind of doubt, but are we teaching kids what to do with their doubts and with their fears when they come up? We know from letters to Timothy, he actually probably was kind of a fearful guy, that he probably struggled with fear and doubt. Paul was reminding him often, you know, hey, God hasn't given you that spirit of fear, but he's given you a spirit of love and power and a sound mind. And he's, he's always encouraging him, like, don't let anyone despise your youth. I know you're young. I know you're timid. I know you're afraid. I know people aren't going to listen because of how young you are, but just persevere. Be an example to the believers is what he tells them. <clears throat> so are we teaching them that kind of confidence, not in themselves, not self-confidence, but a confidence in Christ and who they are in him? He says in that verse, 2 Timothy, knowing from whom you have learned them, knowing from whom they have learned them. Do the kids in our life see a faith in Jesus modeled? in our lives. And that, I think, is one of the most critical things is to be an example for those kids around us, that we wouldn't be teaching them one thing in Sunday school or teaching them one thing at home and then going and doing the total opposite. They need to know whom they have believed and that we are trustworthy in what we teach them about Jesus. And then knowing from childhood, how young is too young to teach our children the scriptures? I mean, you could even like start like in the womb, like, hey, guess what? But I don't. It worked for John the Baptist, right? He was filled with the Spirit in, from the womb. Um, but we often look at kids and say, no, they're they can't quite grasp this. Maybe in a few years, maybe when they mature a little bit more. And I don't think that there's a single biblical truth that can't be brought down to their level, to a way that they can understand it. I mean, we can talk with our kids about the Trinity and sin and the, the union of Christ, totally God and totally man now, and they can, they can get it, and we shouldn't ever hesitate, and we shouldn't get discouraged when it doesn't seem like they're getting it. Just keep going, you know? There's a whole lot to learn about God, and so we just need to keep persisting with our kids. Now, okay, so verse 3. Paul wants Timothy to go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. So we've been talking about circumcision for like two or three weeks and how they determined, finally, you don't have to do it. That's a regulation um, and an outward expression from the Old Covenant 
And we have the fullness of that expression in Christ who was cut off and bore the curse for his people. And so we are, uh, he bore the curse so that we don't have to. So in that decree that they decided in Jerusalem before, they said, you know, hey, you don't have to get circumcised, but we want you to abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you do, if you keep yourselves from these, you do well. So it almost seems like, hey, Paul, what's going on? You just told everyone else they don't have to get circumcised, but now you're taking Timothy and getting him circumcised. And he says, because of the Jews who were in that region. Now, Paul mentions later on in Scripture, he says, I've become all things to all men so that I might save some. Paul knew that everyone else knew that Timothy was a Greek, and so they probably weren't going to listen to him. So as a way of being less offensive to the people around, he says, okay, just get circumcised. Now they don't have anything to complain about with you. And that's kind of what we're called to do. We have an offensive message. The gospel, the message of the cross is offensive because it confronts people with their sin and the remedy and says there's nothing that you could do to save yourself. It took an act of God dying on a tree to save you. And so we should understand and be sensitive to the fact that that is offensive and then try and eliminate anything else about me personally that might offend others and make it so that they can't hear. There is Hudson Taylor, when he went to China, uh, they, were, they didn't listen to him. He, they're Chinese. He's a white guy dressed as, you know, uh, early Victorian, whatever white guys do. And they couldn't, they were so distracted by who he was and what he looked like until he shaved his head and started to dress like they did. Then they could hear the message. There's people like in India, uh, culturally, you don't wear shorts. You don't let people see your legs. It's like offensive and awkward. So if you were a missionary and you went to India and you're there and you're like, you know, American apparel dressed in shorts and a tank top and, you know, they're like, whoa, I can't even hear your message because I'm offended by who you are. Um, so that's what is going on here is that Timothy was willing to do this hard thing so that he could go and share the message with people who wouldn't hear him otherwise. Um, <clears throat> Jesus came in the flesh. He came to reveal himself to us in a way that we could understand. There's this story, um, Paul Harvey tells it. Well, not anymore, but there's recordings of Paul Harvey telling this story. It says, on Christmas Eve... Well, and this is my paraphrase because it's kind of a long one. It says, on Christmas Eve, a woman was going to church, and the husband decided that this year he wasn't going. He didn't believe in all that stuff about God coming to earth as the man Jesus. And so it was too hypocritical for him to go to church if he doesn't really believe that anyway. So he says, well, I'm just going to stay home. So it starts to snow that night, but he's comfortable in his chair by the fire. Eventually, he hears a thudding sound and thought maybe somebody was throwing snowballs at the window. But when he gets up to look, he finds a miserable flock of birds in the snow. Looking for shelter, 
they are trying to fly into the window. Now he doesn't want them to freeze, so he decides to open up the barn door for shelter. He turns on the lights there, but the birds don't go in. So he sprinkles a trail of breadcrumbs to try and lure them in, but they don't go. He tries to catch them, and he can't. He tries to shoo them in, but they don't go. He finally realizes that they're scared of him. To them, he is a strange and terrifying creature. He was confusing and frightening them because they couldn't understand him. Now he thought to himself, if only I could be a bird. I could mingle with them and speak their language and tell them not to be afraid. If I was a bird, they would see and hear and understand. And then the church bells ring, and he finally gets it. That's what Jesus did. Jesus came like us so that he could be with us, and, and we would understand, and we could hear him, and we could hear his message. The Bible teaches us that God is three and yet one, and that God is spirit. So Jesus, the Son of God, at one point decided, you know, as the Trinity, they decide someone has to go. So Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. He's the same substance and the same, the exact representation of the Father. It says that he came to reveal the Father to us and that if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. So that was one uh, important part of why he came in the flesh because of the incarnation so that he could come and reveal God to us. Now, he's also, um, scripture uses this word icon in, in Greek. It's um, that he's the representation of God the Father. So like when you look on your phone and you see the little icon of an app, you know that tied up in that little icon is the rest of the program. You click on that and you get the fullness of the program. So that's kind of what it means to be an icon. Jesus is the fullness of God in a small form, in a small image that we can see and understand. And yet also icon is a printing press term. The letters that they struck left that image on the paper that they were printing it on. So when Jesus, the icon, was struck, he left that image on us. And that's what we're seeing with Timothy. He's bearing the image of Christ, the one who was struck for him, the one who was willing to take on extreme discomfort and to die to himself and to give up his life for the good of others. Now Timothy is doing that same thing. He says, I, I will. I'll, I'll be circumcised. I'll, I'll die to my own desires. I'll die to my own desire for comfort. And I'll give that away so that I can go and share this gospel with other people. I, I mean, that's, that's love. That's what love is, is to be willing to do something hard for the benefit of others, even when it costs you something. And that's what Christ is calling all of us to do, is to love our neighbors, to do what it takes for their benefit, for their good, even if it costs me and hurts me. So they go and they deliver the decrees from Jerusalem through all the cities. Those decrees, like we, we just mentioned, you don't need to be circumcised, abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, etc. 
abstain from things strangled and abstain from sexual immorality. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. It's interesting that the strength of the church depends on teaching. That's what they're doing. All the times when they're coming from one city to the next to encourage and strengthen them, it's all centered around teaching the Word of God. Here's what God says. Here's who God is. Here's what God says about you. Somebody has said you can only trust God as far as you know Him. So we can't really grow in faith in something that we don't understand. And that's my prayer for the church, the church at large, and us as a church, is that God would spark a new desire in us, in all of us, to seek him, to learn him, and to know him, so that we can trust him and obey him, and love him as he truly is, and to honor him more. So if we want to see the church being strengthened in the faith, we need to... Well, we take this example from Paul and Timothy, but really it points to Christ. Paul, who takes Timothy under his wing and, and, and leads him and teaches him, uh, built on the foundation of Timothy's mom and his grandma, who raised him up in the way that he should go. And now Timothy, as a man, trusting the Lord and stepping out and following and denying himself and willing to face uncomfort and, and hardship, so that he could uh, share the gospel with people. And it all has to be centered around understanding God through his word. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, your word says, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. We do ask that of you. Help us to know you more to trust you more, that our hearts would be united in us for you and your purposes, for your plans. We pray that you would help us to be more faithful to you and that we would be faithful in the things that you've called us to, raising kids, serving the church, loving our neighbor, working for our employers. Help us to be faithful stewards and faithful ambassadors for Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.